Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkeiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. I was really excited to have today's conversation with Paul Thompson. Paul is a very influential philosopher in a number of areas, including risk, sustainability, and bringing new tools to problems. He's argued for using the tools of philosophy of technology to look at that suite of technologies we call agriculture. He's also argued for using the tools in environmental philosophy to not just think about wild places or national parks, but the environment of rural areas. His book, The Spirit of the Soil, argued for the importance of having a connection to growing food long before elementary schools were putting gardens into their yards. Personally, Paul was on my dissertation committee, and he's been a great help to me as I developed a lot of my philosophical ideas. So, uh, you know, feel free to blame him for anything dumb I ever say or write. And my grad school career was partly funded by working for him as a graduate assistant. So, of course, this will be the kind of hard-hitting attack interview you'd expect. But let me read Paul's bio. Paul B. Thompson is the W.K. Kellogg Professor of Agricultural, Food, and Community Ethics at Michigan State University, where he teaches in the Departments of Philosophy, Community Sustainability, and Agriculture, Food, and Resource Economics. He's taught and written on ethical issues in the food system for 40 years, serving at Texas A&M University and Purdue University before coming to Michigan State. His books include Sacred Cows and Hot Potatoes, Agrarian Myths and Policy Realities, which was featured in briefing materials for congressional staffers and which won an award for excellence in communication from the Agricultural and Applied Economics Association in 1992. Thompson's book, From Field to Fork, Food Ethics for Everyone, won Book of the Year for 2015 from the North American Society for Social Philosophy. I also personally think it has really cool illustrations. You should check those out. His new book, Sustainability, What Everyone Needs to Know, which was co-authored with Patricia Norris, is now available from Oxford University Press. So here's my conversation with Paul Thompson. So let me ask, uh, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm, uh, you know, not doing as much travel as I used to. I'm not doing any professional travel. I'm, I've been down to uh, Georgia a couple of times to uh, um, pay a visit to my wife Diane's family farm and uh, been enjoying that, kind of looking forward to maybe retiring in a year or two and spending even more time down there. And one of the good things about uh, teaching remotely, which I'm doing 100%, is I can just as easily teach a class from South Georgia as I can from uh, right here in Michigan. Yeah, I actually know someone who is uh, working at a university here in Texas, not mine. Um, and he is moving to New York to be with his family and just continuing to work because he said, uh, you know, now's the moment when they have all of the technical capabilities at his university to do that, but no policies in place. And in a year, they might have policies. Right. Um, and, you know, I mean, things now are quite different, uh, but, you know, I, I mean, it, it carries on. It carries on. Uh, but speaking of the fact that, you, you know, the farm that you're... Uh, wife's family has. Um, you're the first person I've had on this podcast uh, talking about food, you know, from activists and academics, from a lot of different perspectives, uh, with a focus on agriculture. 
uh, in your work. And I know that, you know, part of that might just be my bias and who, who, who I work with and who I know. But do you think that um, when philosophers do talk about food, which is already, you know, not as common as other topics in philosophy, that there is more of an emphasis on food as something that we eat rather than on food as something that we grow? Oh, definitely. I think uh, uh, the thing that has uh, really kind of spawned a lot of interest among philosophers to write about uh, food, you know, have been books like Michael Pollan's uh, uh, The Omnivore's Dilemma, you know, where he kind of uses ethic for Pollan, ethics as kind of a, a, a structure to hang the book around, you know, how can I eat ethically? And he kind of wanders through the food system answering this question. And it's it's a natural uh, way to come into thinking about food. Um, and the other, of course, the other thing that's really uh, stressed uh, that among philosophers has been the last uh, 40 years of interest in things like vegetarian diets and uh, the idea that we can um, shape practice by uh, what we choose to eat and what we don't choose to eat. But it's always, I mean, my background is philosophy of technology, and I've always seen agriculture as a form of technology. And so I've always kind of started at the agriculture end of the food system in terms of where my interests are. And I have to say, it probably took me 10 years to appreciate how strange that seems to the average person, not just the average philosopher, but uh, you know, people today don't really think very much about where food comes from, and um, they don't really think about the problems that you would encounter in trying to produce food in a traditional agricultural setting. And, uh, you know, that's really been the motivation, I think, especially for a lot of my work over the last 10 years or so. Yeah, and I mean, even earlier, there's uh, one of your earlier books, Spirit of the Soil, which I'll put uh, some links to in the show notes for this, uh, is fantastic. I'm using it in my philosophy of food class to think about what it is to grow food, how we, sh how philosophers ought to think about that, rather than just from sort of a uh, confrontational attitude, like environmentalists might have contrasting farms and forests, and you know, just thinking about what it is to farm and how that might alter our relationship to food. But you're working on a new project now. Um, you sent me something to take a look at to discuss. And it seems here that you have um, these different archetypes about what might happen with the future of farming. So, you know, we can all imagine a bucolic past. Most of us who think about this can imagine a fairly terrible, a bad to terrible uh, present. But what do you think the future is holding for farming? Well, uh, in this book, I've uh, tried to suggest that you know, the way people, I see kind of four ways in which this is thought about it. Some people might find it strange that I break these four groups out the way that I do, but I do think that probably the view that's still dominant, and this would be both among kind of innovators, people who are developing uh, new technologies for food, uh, but also, I mean, companies, food companies, whether we're talking about grocery store chains or uh, people that manufacture uh, agricultural chemicals or machinery, uh, you know, they they basically kind of assume that things are going to be like they've always been, and they have, uh, you know, kind of a um, modernist industrialist view. They see agriculture as uh, one sector of our economy, and they think that uh, what's really going to determine the future are ways in which new technologies emerge 
that are primarily uh, driven by the ability to make money. Um, that uh, you know, people in Silicon Valley who are developing uh, artificially intelligent uh, guided drones to monitor farmers' fields or uh, introduce precision farming are doing that because they think there's an opportunity to develop a new tool uh, that will be so beneficial to farmers that they'll just have to buy it. Uh, and so there's an opportunity there to make money. Um, and I don't mean to you know, lay too much stress on the make money part here. I mean, it's not, I'm not saying there's something venal about that. Uh, the idea really is that this is kind of how innovation happens in every sector of our economy. That, you know, the people who uh, uh, developed uh, the kinds of technology we're using right now, where we're talking to each other from whatever it is, a thousand miles apart over the internet, uh, developed that technology because they saw a window of opportunity. And, uh, you know, they're hopefully, at least they're trying to make some money off of that. And we tend to think that even in healthcare, which is another very ethically driven sector of the economy, the, the companies that develop drugs or surgical techniques are uh, looking for opportunities uh, where they can recover the costs of innovation by putting it into the marketplace. So I think that's actually kind of the root model. I think that's the model that's gotten us to where we are. Um, the fact that it's gotten us to where we are and that many people see huge problems with where we are uh, is, I think, what sort of pushes us to the other three archetypes. But yeah, I but just to, so, well, just to concentrate on that one first. Yeah. So when you talk about that as the status quo or things staying the same, you actually mean staying the same in that uh, there things will be constantly disrupted by technological innovation. So this first model isn't uh, some sort of, you know, uh, lack of growth or everything being frozen in place. Exactly. It's that, the, yeah. it's that change will keep going. Exactly. We'll continue to have change, but the thing that will steer change is uh, um, the ability to uh, innovate and recover your cost of innovation, make profits uh, in a capitalist economy. Yeah. And there will be huge disruptions. I mean, there's amazing stuff coming down the pike. Right. Uh, that uh, is, I mean, I mentioned Silicon Valley uh, advisedly because there's just been an enormous influx of venture capital into food system technologies, largely since 2010. Uh, there are lots of uh, uh, companies all over, but it's interesting how many of them are concentrated in that center of innovation that we associate with uh, information technology. Uh, companies that are using biotech and artificial intelligence and you name it, big data to uh, develop new ways of producing food or affecting what farmers do. And it'll be very disruptive. But, you know, the technologies that get developed in the tech in, on this model, that the choices will be made by uh, this ability to recover your costs through, um, uh, through ultimately a profit-seeking model. Yeah. So for uh, I think for a lot of people hearing that, certainly people in, you know, in an American context, that it's hard to imagine why, how you could think of three other things, because the idea that lots of things will be invented, the people doing the inventing will want to recoup their losses, uh, seems like the only way that change can happen. So what are your some, some other models that you have uh, in this framework? 
Well, I do think that the other three models are much more driven by um, visions of what's problematic of where we are now. Mm -hmm. Whether they're going to succeed or not, whether they're going to be able to beat down that uh, for-profit model is uh, another question. But let me let me kind of first just talk about the way each of these other archetypes are driven or motivated by different kinds of value commitments. The, uh, the, the first one, which I think is very common in agricultural universities and to some extent even within a lot of mainstream traditional companies that uh, have been in the agricultural and food domain for a long time, uh, is, uh, is really motivated by a recognition of the huge environmental costs that are associated with the agriculture that we practice today. Um, they, you know, lots of my colleagues in the agricultural sciences here at Michigan State uh, are uh, very conscious of impacts on soil, on uh, the amount of energy that's being used, on emissions, both from livestock production, but frankly, when you're applying synthetic fertilizers, you get a, a very significant off-gassing of climate-forcing uh, gases. Uh, and uh, they just basically are become totally convinced that uh, we can't keep doing this. Uh, they also have completely bought into the idea that uh, uh, we need innovation. We, we need to continue to innovate because we haven't really, although we slowed, we haven't really stopped global population growth. So we need to figure out some way to continue to increase the amount of food that we produce, but we need to do so sort of within or if not within within the existing footprint or you know preferably even shrink the footprint of the current food system and so they're very focused on a lot of different kinds of efficiency some of them are working on the same things that the silicon valley people are working on but they're less motivated by the idea that we're going to make a buck out of this than uh, seeing it as a response to these twin problems of uh, uh, climate change and uh, its intended its uh, environmental consequences, and then continued population growth on the other hand. So I call that. What do I call that? <laughs> a, well, a phrase that's used a lot for that kind of thing is sustainable intensification. That's it. Yes, you've read my you've read my note. I I have <laughs> I did <laughs> the sustainable intensification archetype, right? So it has to be environmental, but nonetheless, intensification means we do have to get more out of the food system than we're currently getting out of it. So, um, you know, if I if I sort of hang, you know, kind of go to the opposite extreme and, you know, the uh, friends that I hang out with that are interested in organics and uh, farmers markets and, uh, you know, kind of reforming the food system in a, in a more basic kind of way, uh, I think I call that... Uh, 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 regional food systems or regional agrarianism. Mm -hmm. And they really do have a commitment to farmers as they have traditionally been understood. I mean, one of the problems with both the, uh, uh, the kind of modernization archetype and the sustainable intensification archetype is that they really aren't committed to farmers, right? You could just as easily come up with technologies that would... Uh, uh, produce food in different ways. It might be produced in factories. Uh, uh, certainly things like uh, uh, aeroponics or hydroponic systems that would be uh, located in cities might produce food. And so uh, this uh, agrarian regional regionalist uh, is really committed to the idea 
that uh, technology should serve farmers, it should make farmers more sustainable. And that means not only environmentally, but also socially. Um, and so uh, they've uh, really focused on innovations like community supported agriculture, uh, farmers markets, farm to table, which might be something that happens in a hospital kitchen or in uh, school cafeterias, um, various kinds of institutional food service. But these are ways to sort of strengthen the position of the farmer and, and relieve farmers of this intense competitive pressure that they've been in uh, in a market-based situation. So they're deriving uh, ethical commitment. There's this commitment to farmers. It goes back to Thomas Jefferson, uh, who uh, saw the future of the United States uh, depending on uh, a population of uh, farmers uh, living in rural areas. Uh, it goes back to Abraham Lincoln, who, uh, uh, although we associate Lincoln with uh, ending slavery quite rightly, uh, he also was the president who created the Department of Agriculture, which he called the People's Department, and he saw uh, the, the farmer as sort of the paradigm person that needed to be supported in a democratic environment. So in some respects, I think that, that uh, archetype is driven by a, a deep historical commitment to the idea that uh, uh, that uh, rural independent farmer is, uh, is kind of the model of what a good uh, citizen would be. And my last archetype is kind of the, the most, that's the one that people want to push back on the most. And I call this urban agriculture. And I think that it does have a kind of schizophrenic um, uh, identity in the sense that I, I think of this as uh, an archetype that's driven by a value commitment to uh, cities and the fact that a lot of the food insecurity and uh, difficulty of people getting access to food has been urban-based. And if you look at projections into the future, especially as we're talking about climate change, uh, some of the biggest uh, uh, problems are going to be faced by uh, the world's megacities, cities of more than 5 million people, uh, many of which are located in areas that will be some of the most dramatically affected by uh, climate change, uh, places where uh, they really won't be able to depend on farmers, uh, at least not farmers within the immediate vicinity of these cities, uh, to grow food. Uh, the agriculture is going to be becoming less productive because of climate change and flooding and uh, uh, climate variations. Uh, so these uh, urban leaders are starting to think about how are we going to feed our cities. Um, you also see people currently in uh, uh, cities uh, who uh, represent uh, uh, the you know poor and marginalized groups, often racially marginalized groups, uh, as uh, recognizing the intense vulnerability of uh, of uh, people living in cities, and uh, uh, you know they're starting urban farms, not because they think farming is a model of democracy or citizenship or something like that, but so that they can produce the food for their neighbors, right? Their moral commitments are not to farmers, their moral commitments are to getting food into people's mouths and doing that under a model which they sort of feel like agriculture has failed them. This model of producing food in rural areas and you know, shipping into the cities just isn't working anymore. So I'm kind of lumping the urban farms, you know, which sometimes people like to link with the small farms and the urban and the organic farmers together with these 
uh, urban planners that see the need to uh, use, uh, you know, very high tech kinds of vertical production systems, greenhouses, uh, um, aeroponic uh, plant production. Uh, there are companies in Silicon Valley producing milk in giant vats like you would brew beer. Uh, and, um, you know, this, this kind of, you know, cutting the, cutting the umbilical cord to, to, uh, from rural areas and uh, the driving ethical commitment there is it's kind of need to make sure that uh, people who, who live in cities are going to be able to eat. So there's, there's kind of these three moral visions. One is kind of, let's look at environmental issues, future generations, let's, uh, let's, let's uh, shape agriculture so that we resolve the environmental problems and feed people in the future. That's sustainable intensification. Um, the uh, regional agrarian model is we got to preserve farmers. We've got to make farmers more sustainable. We've got to continue to support that aspect of uh, our economy. And then the urban agriculture has got this commitment not to farmers or future generations, but to people who are here right now and who are hungry and who's, uh, who are vulnerable to uh, disruptions in the food system. Yeah, so it's, it's worth emphasizing that. So for you, these, the difference between these aren't just, um, you know, practically what would they prioritize or where would research happen or the economic models underlying them or anything like that, but that these are normative categories, that these are ideas about what's, what we should do, you know, sort of visionary uh, differences. Yes, that's exactly right. And I would actually see even the profit-driven model as a normative model. There's certainly plenty of people who think that uh, markets are just the best way to uh, do the greatest good for the greatest number, to sort of uh, cite the utilitarian mantra there. Uh, so there's a, there's a long tradition of thinking that, uh, you know, having a well-structured competitive economy is the normal, norm, normative foundation for moving forward in any sector of the economy. Um, and I, I think, you know, I'm stressing the idea that there are these different normative commitments. And it's also true that there are certain tools, certain specific innovations, whether those are lab-grown meats or um, uh, precision agricultural production systems that might be favored by people in who are kind of working with different normative uh, archetypes. but my goal is to essentially lift that normative dimension out to a point where people can see it and think about it and maybe be a little more reflective about uh, how normative commitments shape your vision of the food system. Yeah. Like I've done uh, some research on precision livestock farming and have uh, you know, published some things on that and I'm presenting at that in various places. And likewise, I think that one of the sort of blind spots for a lot of people that are working to develop PLF technologies or to get farmers to adopt it is that they aren't seeing the sort of underlying normative kind of commitments or ethical commitments that they have uh, in their, you know, just kind of baked into the vision of what they're doing. And when those don't match with the farmers that they're trying to talk to, then the farmers don't adopt the technology and they don't, and they don't know why. So they tend to, you know, fall back on either, uh, you know, the idea that farmers aren't you know, they're backward or whatever, they're not interested in things or that they're just not doing a good job marketing. So maybe if we called it smart farming instead of PLF, then uh, farmers would be more into it. You know, this this is, it, it's something that does go all the way back to the spirit of the soil and something that's been uh, central in 
in the work that I've done, both in my teaching and my writing, and that I just sort of feel like uh, philosophy of agriculture has actually is really important. It's it's really critical to how we think about the environment, how we think about nature, but it's also critical to how we think about the way that our societies are organized. And you know, we can have a totally different conversation about the history of philosophy and how uh, ideas about agriculture and philosophy of agriculture uh, influenced the ideas of the ancient Greeks and, you know, moved into Rome with some of the Stoic ideas and then uh, was actually embodied in terms of the monastery ideal in the Middle Ages. And, uh, you know, I've already mentioned Jefferson and Lincoln and, you know, very much their political philosophies were informed by the idea that agriculture had a particular place uh, in, in our political thought and our thought about who we are and what we want to try to be. Uh, but I think that that started to recede in about maybe uh, 1800 and has just uh, you know, gotten farther and farther off of people's radar screens any, uh, ever since, this, this kind of industrial model where we see agriculture as you know, just like the entertainment industry or the healthcare industry or the transportation industry in terms of its normative significance uh, is kind of what I'm trying to fight against. And so this is kind of my latest effort in a battle that I was fighting uh, back in the 90s when I was writing The Spirit of the Soil. One of the ways that you've uh, worked on pushing that vision forward is uh, convincing me to work on it <laughs> when I was uh, a PhD student under you. So that's so I agree. You've convinced me. Um, but, uh, you know, speaking about that history, you know, you mentioned that part of what's inspiring that fourth model of um, sort of urban technical farming, uh, urban farming in general, is a tension between people who need food in cities and farmers um, producing food in the countryside. But that tension has existed, you know, for as long as there have been cities and countrysides, haven't there? Like that, you know, like how much should we want food to cost, for example, right? If you support farmers, you're going to want it to be fairly expensive, right? Commodity prices going up is good for farmers, usually anyway. Whereas if you are trying to think about people eating food, who are doing industrial jobs in cities, you would want the price of food to be as low as possible. And balancing that's always been kind of a, like a challenge for governments, right? Oh, I think that's exactly right. And, and uh, it's, if we sort of look at maybe Lincoln's vision, uh, you know, Lincoln is starting the Department of Agriculture at a time when it's still about 80% of the United States population are farmers. So it's easy to see why he thinks of the Department of Agriculture as the people's department. And, and, you know, especially uh, uh, the poor, uh, the, uh, although there are certainly urban poor at Lincoln's time, uh, a lot of the poorest people, the people that uh, are really struggling, are people that uh, are living in rural areas and are trying to farm. So uh, we, we really, if we're going to have any kind of a commitment to farming or to uh, this idea that the agrarian way of thinking has any contemporary relevance, we do have to kind of reinvent uh, Lincoln's model and Jefferson's model. And I think the, the key that we get uh, that probably needs to be retained uh, is uh, that, uh, uh, that, that there is a, a, a special kind of relationship uh, to the environment uh, that uh, the farmer is able to see or the position of being a farmer uh, is able to give you a certain sense of humanity's vulnerability uh, to um, to natural forces, uh, the um, 
the, the sense in which we are always sort of on the precipice of disaster uh, and that we constantly need to be changing. We can't, I mean, no, you know, one of the things that farmers are constantly doing is adjusting what they do, uh, you know, having to constantly rethink and be attentive to uh, changes in this season's uh, rainfall or invasion of various kinds of, uh, of, uh, of uh, pests or um, plant diseases. And uh, uh, that, that sort of mindfulness is in some respects where I would want to build a more forward-looking kind of agrarianism. And, uh, and, and I do think that uh, that has to be put in balance with the fact that uh, not everybody's going to live on farms. We don't probably want, I'd like to see more farmers than we currently have in the United States. We're down to, uh, I think about 1%, maybe even a little less than 1% of our population. I think we could maybe even get back up into double digits and have it be helpful. Uh, but we're certainly not ever going to get back to 80% of our population being farmers again. And uh, we probably wouldn't want to get there. So we need to, we need to, you know, we first thing we have to do is notice the tension that you just pointed out, that there is a tension between uh, the people that depend on buying their food or using some kind of uh, entitlement food stamp type thing to get their food. And they want food to be as inexpensive as possible. And uh, the fact that uh, if you keep driving prices down, you eventually put farmers out of business. Um, but I, so we will need something, and this is kind of what gets back to the market thing, right? You know, just relying on the market basically is guaranteed to drive us into this situation where the only farmers that are able to continue to survive are the, the ones that are operating at a very large scale and probably ignoring a lot of the environmental harms and externalities that are associated with their production process. Uh, yeah. So uh, we need to counter that model. And in some respects, we need to figure out some way to uh, kind of draw a compromise between the other three um, archetypes. Yeah. And I mean, so I'm interested in what that compromise will look like. But first, just you know, it seems to me that um, on the one hand, all four of these models you're talking about have different sorts of ethical normative commitments. But in terms of vision, two really sweep the board. So the idea of using high technology for sustainable intensification, that being environmentally conscious, using advances in technology to have less impact on the land, to make food more easily available, healthier you know, et cetera, you know, the future as promise and progress, that kind of vision in America. And then also sort of the the third one about these, you know, kind of this Wendell Berry vision of small farmers um, being connected to the land, the spirit of the soil, like we were saying, um, as that being the heartland of America, that being the spirit of who we are, that those two sort of run the field in terms of ways that we talk. Because like, if you look at um, people who support the first model of just making money in innovation and technology, they don't, well, internally, I'm sure they do, but externally in their advertisement, they don't say that that's what they're trying to do. Like, you know, for the PLF work, the precision livestock farming work that I've done, they tend to switch between those two other visions. They say that with these new high tech, uh, you know, big data algorithms and closed loop engineering processes and, you know, all kinds of new monitoring devices, um, we'll be able to have much less waste. You know, you can feed pigs significantly less food, for example, rather than feeding, if you have a thousand pigs, feeding each of them as much as the one that needs the most 
uh, requires and wasting most of that food, um, that instead you can you know tailor it so that you're having much less impact, much less waste, uh, better outcomes in terms of welfare for the pigs until they're slaughtered at any rate. Um, and you know, it's like everything's everything's better with science. And then at the same time, though, they also pitch their materials to farmers with that smart farming sort of uh, angle as uh, you know, you, we know, you farmer would like to have two or three cows whose names you all know, and you know that this one favors her left side and that one doesn't like clover as much as the other, uh, because you think that that's your responsibility and that's what it is to be a good farmer. But unfortunately, you're being driven by economic forces to have more and more and more chickens or pigs or cows or whatever it is. But here with these technologies, we allow you to have that kind of individuated personal attention to animals at scale. So you can still be that kind of bucolic, like good farmer, good responsibilities. They're still using those two like frameworks. And then in the city too, if you look at urban ag, they tend to do one or the other. Either they're pushing toward vertical farms, like I just had on uh, a guest, Shane Epting, to talk about virtual farming technologies in cities as a way of producing food, where you know these giant glass edifices are seen as their own architecturally beautiful high-tech thing, or people you know, doing uh, rooftop gardening and reclaiming abandoned lots in Detroit to try to, you know, make it green and beautiful again, coming back to the soil, teaching people who haven't farmed how to really connect with the ground. So it seems like those two visions of either high-tech science or, you know, personal farming, those are the ones that get touted. Like those are, those are the ways, the two ways Americans see themselves. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but I think that's probably right. Uh, um, there's a certain sense in which the the kind of modernization archetype, uh, you know, I mean, one of the one of the characteristics of it is it actually doesn't see agriculture as anything particularly special. Um, so right. it's a it's a kind of general view of the economy. And so, uh, you know, when you sort of get down to talking about um, a particular agricultural technology, or it could even be a non-agriculture food processing kind of technology, or something that is really aimed at consumers. Um, you know, you're going to probably look for language that's uh, more, I'll just say, food specific. And so that's going to tend you much more towards these other kinds of models, whereas the, the ethical commitments are going to show up uh, at, a, at a much more ideological level. And they're going to basically talk about, you know, whether or not uh, we really need to be putting public funds into these kinds of things or whether or not we need to be regulating in a particular direction or another uh, and suggesting that uh, uh, we really need to let uh, investment kind of solve these problems. So, so they're not going to be in, in the domains that you talked about. And I do think that maybe you see something similar going on with people who have, uh, uh, you know, kind of a more let's feed people in the city sort of uh, vision. Um, but uh uh, you know, I, I think what's interesting is that, you know, will and, and will be interesting to see. I mean, I, I think the urban ag, not only is there a lot of internal tension in that uh, that you've just pointed to, but it's also the vaguest one. It's hard to know what's really going to work or how things are going to play out. And I think to the extent that it starts to play out that we don't really need farmers in the conventional sense. And, we don't really need to have these deep dependencies on uh, the uh, rural areas that we may start to see uh, some of the appeal to these agrarian and kind of sustainable intensification ways of thinking start to recede a bit. It'll just be something we'll have to 
watch and see. You're advocating in this reading or in, in this uh, proposal, uh, not saying that one of these is bad and we should all concentrate on the third one or whatever it is. Uh, so what should we do to reach some kind of compromise or move forward into the future uh, most effectively? Should we be looking for areas where they all happen to agree? Uh, you know, or there's some kind of overlap. Is that necessarily good or something else? Well, so one thing that one of the reasons why I like four um, I, is that I don't like two. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, one of the philosophical motivations here is that when you get dichotomies and dualisms, you tend to get into the kind of situation that's very familiar to Americans right now, you know, right. where, you know, there's, there's, it's sort of winner take all. And, uh, you know, you're either a hundred percent right. And if you're a hundred percent wrong, then anyone who's against right, then everyone who's against you is a hundred percent wrong. And you get into these really stylized, not very productive kinds of debates. So I think that a philosophical con uh, conversation always needs to, to have uh, at least a three-way structure and maybe even a four or five-way structure. You know, once you start getting up to a seven or eight-way structure, it just gets to be too complicated, right? So we, won't, we don't want to go that far. But I am trying to suggest uh, here that we need to find some way to think about our conversation about the food system that uh, maps in a bit more complexity and of course, since I'm a philosopher, I'm interested in the value dimension, but it maps in a little more complexity than uh, just putting up a, a, a dichotomy between sort of the agrarian model and the sustainable intensification model would suggest. Uh, I do think that a lot of people who work in the food system uh, are committed, you know, that they see it as a, as a battle between those two. Uh, points of view. And, you know, for them, part of the message of this is, well, wait a minute, there's a, there's sort of two other polls here that we could uh, introduce into this uh, debate. And uh, you might, might help you understand both ways in which the things that you think are important can get diverted and sort of whiplashed in very unexpected directions. But it also might just complicate the conversation enough uh, to open up more creative opportunities. Right. So is there a way, do you think, to navigate these kinds of conversations about the future that aren't just combative or competitive? I mean, and keeping in mind, you know, as you point out, one of these models is the status quo. And the nice thing about having that as a model is it becomes obvious that if we don't have these conversations, then the one that is, well, let's just keep things the way they are sort of wins by default. Right. Yeah, I mean, in some respects, the the only thing that I can say is that uh, you know, just we just have to have the conversation, right? That's that's the model, and uh, uh, it's not easy. Um, you know, it's it's uh, you know, conversations are constantly getting pushed into the extremes, and uh, you know, one of the things that I uh, have always tried to do is to try to wherever I am and in whatever venue it is to try to uh, open up space for, um, you know, a, a broader set of considerations. I think, you know, sometimes when, pe you know, people are doing that by just pointing to uh, the different interests that are out there and, you know, noticing that there have been groups of people that have been systematically excluded or marginalized 
um, over time. And, and I think that's consistent with the kind of thing that I'm doing. Uh, but I would also say that, you know, just getting new voices or different identities into a conversation that's structured in terms of only two alternatives, uh, it may not actually turn out to be much progress. So uh, I think that it is, I think philosophy has an important role in terms of uh, laying out uh, some of the logical space in which different normative positions get developed. Um, none of these positions are strictly um, logical opposites of the other. Uh, so maybe there is some way in which they could all be realized or satisfied, but I don't think that's likely to happen unless we have the conversation that explores uh, the different commitments that each one has. Yeah, and conversations that can lead to, I mean, direct policy. The idea of using policy to intervene in agriculture to shape it is, you know, as you're pointing out, it's as old as Abraham Lincoln, at least, or really Thomas Jefferson with uh, land use policies towards Native Americans. Um, that, you know, having these conversations is important and then thinking about ways that we as a society can structure things to push them towards one or the other or some combination of them. Yeah, that's right. So uh, Jefferson had uh, both a, uh, a strong policy of trying to, uh, maybe not, maybe he was not committed to getting rid of the Native Americans. That might have come a little later, but he certainly wanted to force them off of the land and to make room right. for uh, European immigrants that would come and farm it. Uh, the other big thing that he had was the Louisiana Purchase, which uh, in my history classes was never taught as an agricultural policy, but for Jefferson, it certainly was. Yeah, I mean, the, well, if, you're, if the idea is to enfranchise people, to make people be citizens and to care about where they are, if the model for that is getting them on the ground, getting them farming, then an expansion of land that you can have people use is obviously going to be going to be connected to that. Right. So one of the things that you uh, sort of hint at tantalizingly in the in what you sent me to look at about ways that we might start to begin to have those conversations is you talk about food and farming and focal objects, particularly the work of Borgman. So maybe just quick, first of all, uh, for people that uh, didn't already take classes with you as a graduate student, can you talk about who that is? And then we can see like how that might connect. Yeah, so Albert Borgman is a philosopher of technology, um, still living up on a mountain outside of Missoula, Montana. Um, and uh, uh, Borgman develops this idea of uh, what he calls the device paradigm, which he contrasts with focal objects and focal practices. So Borgman argues that the problem with uh, the trajectory of technology over the last two centuries uh, has been that it has tended to undercut uh, focal practices and focal objects. So his, one of his primary example of a focal object is the fireplace, the hearth. And uh, in a traditional home of uh, 1800, uh, you would have a fire burning in the hearth. You would be using it for cooking. You would be using it for heat. Um, it would uh, both visually and aesthetically, but also in terms of the activity of what goes on in the house, uh, provide a kind of center for people's uh, activities. People would be naturally focused on it. They'd constantly be tending the fire. Uh, they'd have to be mindful of what they were doing in terms of their cooking. Uh, in fact, it would dominate their lives even when they weren't at the house because they would be out chopping wood 
or gathering uh, something to burn in the hearth. It was something that really ordered their lives all year round. Um, and uh, he, he the, you know, focal objects do this. They sort of become meaning generators. They generate a lot of the demands for how you have to spend your time and the way that you organize uh, your activity. And uh, so, you know, Borgman points out that, you know, all of this work is kind of a pain in the neck. Uh, people uh, don't really want to do it. Uh, and then he contrasts that with uh, a modern system where, you know, you would have a, a central heating system. And the central heating system functions completely in the background. You know, you basically, I actually did just change the time on my central heating system because it <laughs> doesn't automatically reset for daylight savings time. But so you don't have a high-tech enough one yet. Yeah, I know. You can buy one now that will do that, right? So, uh, but most people, you know, you're just not going to interface with your heating system, you know, very often. Maybe change the filter every now and then, you know. And, and so it's going to deliver the heat that you got from a, a hearth and it's, you know, your stove and your kitchen is going to deliver the cooking power that you need to cook. And uh, for that matter, you can call somebody up and have them deliver food. So uh, you, you have all of these ways of sort of getting the goods that we used to associate with the hive, with the hearth that are non-involving. Uh, they're very convenient. Um, we, we like them. Borgman's not saying we ought to go back to heating our homes and cooking our food on the hearth. But what's happened is more and more of our lives have been given over to these devices like the central heating system and the stove and the, uh, the Grubhub app uh, is that our life starts to get emptied out of the things that create meaning, uh, that create relationships with people around us that bind us together into uh, activities that we have to perform uh, in order to uh, survive and just uh, meet the needs of the day. Uh, and, and so life becomes kind of empty. It becomes kind of meaningless. We, we're searching for things that can have uh, meaningful activities. Um, and so, you know, he suggests that, you know, some sorts of things can uh, substitute for this, but we have to be mindful. We have to be thoughtful about what those things are. And they might be things like, you know, he talks about the minor league baseball park in Missoula. It can be rooting for the local team can have some of those effects. But he also stresses what he calls culture of the table, that you can sort of recover some of the aspects of a focal practice uh, by uh, paying more attention to your food-related practices, to preparing a, a meal, to planning for it, to thinking about who you're going to eat with. Um, and these would be ways of sort of restoring aspects of a meaningful life uh, that uh, 200 years ago uh, would have uh, been associated with some of the more onerous and difficult and dirty and even dangerous aspects of uh, getting along in the world. Yeah, I have my uh, students read some things by Borgman uh, whenever I teach engineering ethics or philosophy of technology classes. And I, I find that people really like, unlike, say, making them read Heidegger or something, people are very enthusiastic. They find it quite interesting, this distinction between uh, convenient devices, where if you make your whole life convenient, then you just kind of sail meaninglessly through your life in kind of an alienated way, or, you know, gritty, folk, you know, things that you have to focus on to do. So how does that plug into this idea about thinking about uh, moving forward in food production? Well, I do think one of the, 
ways that I kind of affiliate with the agrarian regionalist tradition is that, uh, you know, th there really is a sense in which, although maybe this isn't the forefront of many food activists thinking, uh, I do think that uh, the kinds of things that people in that tradition are really pushing for are in fact focal practices. And the value of them uh, maybe less that they actually keep farmers going, but that they kind of restore a certain kind of meaning generating activities uh, to participating in food. And maybe that can be bridged with some of the things that are going on in urban agriculture, some of the, you know, uh, some of the urban farms and restoring uh, empty lots and growing your own kind of food. So I, I think that there are, uh, that's possibly one of the bridging principles. And I would also, for you know, my colleagues that are so committed to feeding the world in a kind of sustainable intensification vision, uh, you know, would encourage them to be mindful of the sense in which uh, a, a device paradigm could actually undercut uh, some of the the the, the meaning-giving activities that we associate with food, and that we we don't want to go so far in that direction uh, that we. Uh, we, we can't really get uh, a focal dimension out of, out, out of the way that we produce and distribute and then prepare and consume food. Right. Yeah. I mean, you could make things, you know, the, uh, the vision in 1950s, 1960s futurism of people being able to swallow a small pill in the, in the morning and not have to eat all day right. is uh, not actually even desirable, let, let alone technically very difficult, not even right. necessarily something we want to aim our society toward. Yeah, I used to watch the Jetsons. I have probably very few people listening to this food podcast know about the Jetsons, but that was a cartoon show in the 60s where they had a little uh, push button in the kitchen and they'd uh, uh, a robot would just you know suddenly produce whatever they were going to eat for supper. Right? That's that's the device paradigm. Right. So, do you have much optimism for the future of agriculture? I mean, with climate change making it increasingly difficult to predict seasons and that being a huge burden on farmers and on just the, our ability to produce food with desertification in large agrarian regions like in China uh, and Africa with, um, you know, just the costs of increased population uh, and other kinds of knock-on problems in Europe, making it more and more difficult to sustain farms there. Um, you know, a lot of people are very worried about our ability to produce food in the future, first of all, at all, like in the sense of having enough food to give to people to eat, but then also this idea of being able to preserve anything like, uh, you know, rural life. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I don't want to come off like a, a kind of Dale Carnegie optimist. That's another reference to the 50s and 60s. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I do kind of think that that... You know, although the, I think the challenges are huge and there are many reasons to worry that we won't be able to meet them. And I do worry that if we don't take these challenges in hand, we will come up short. Um, you know, we will see major issues. We will see people that suffer as a result of uh, the failure to address these things. And I, by address them, I mean in all of their richness and complexity that all three of these uh, uh, kind of counter archetypes uh, uh, express. Um, I, I think that we need to do that. However, you know, I'm kind of existentially optimistic in the sense that uh, 
I think that you uh, need to have some sense of hopefulness uh, in order to have the psychic energy and the motivation to undertake the work uh, that's needed to um, give you any chance of, uh, of meeting those challenges. So, you know, and I can see, you know, some of these technologies that are uh, being talked about, um, you know, are, are truly revolutionary in terms of uh, the way that they would get food to us. And uh, I think it remains to, to be seen uh, how they impact us spiritually. And I think that it remains to be seen whether or not they're really technically feasible. But um, uh, there's a nice new book for a popular audience out by an author named Amanda Little. And uh, she, she kind of uh, concludes by saying, you know, reviews a lot of these new uh, things. Her book's called The Fate of Food and sort of says, well, when you look at all of these, you know, each one sort of seems like a shot in the dark, but there's so many of them that uh, we can be optimistic just because there are so many of them and we can't really believe that they're all going to fail. Um, uh, that may be maybe a little more optimistic than I want to be, but I think it's a good thought. We do have a lot of uh, a lot of things in the mix that that uh, you know are worth giving a try. Sure. Although a problem with innovation uh, in food is that. And we can actually, I'm not going to, I'm not going to guess why I'll have you tell me why you think this is. Uh, there's a lot of resistance to any kind of innovation in food uh, by people who would eat that food. Uh, well, actually, and by farmers. So new farming practices, it's difficult to get farmers to adopt them. And then, you know, you think about genetically modified organisms as kind of the, uh, you know, most prominent example of uh, developments in food technology that are highly resisted by I would say a very motivated minority of people, um, and they're at least viewed with some trepidation, probably by a majority of people. So, is that like? Do you think that's a problem? Why do you think there is that kind of resistance, and do you think that that kind of, uh, you know, makes some of these innovations more difficult than they would be otherwise? Well, I think the resistance from farmers and the resistance from consumers is different. Yeah. Um, in fact, farmers jumped on genetically engineered crops. Sure. Uh, they were more quickly adopted than virtually any other uh, significant innovation in history. You know, on the other hand, you know, the, the point that you're making is very true. There have been some very nice research coming out of sustainable ag research programs on uh, the role that cover crops and uh, avoiding plowing and uh, so on can play in terms of building soils and soil productivity and you know, ways in which they can really make it pay, but it's been very difficult to get farmers to try some of that stuff. Uh, so uh, there's there's a, a story to tell about uh, what farmers are willing to try. Um, I think if they think that uh, they're going to be put at a disadvantage in comparison to other farmers, uh, they will be very quick to use something, uh, but uh, otherwise they wanna make very incremental changes in whatever they're doing. Um, on, 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 the, on the consumer resistance, um, I think, again, it's a really complicated picture. Um, I, I, in the work that I've done on the GMO controversy, uh, I think a lot of the, the people that really sort of brought that to attention, who were uh, the activists that uh, uh, really made that into an issue, 
they were motivated by, um, uh, many of them were motivated by a kind of idea that genetic engineering was a slippery slope and that if we didn't kind of stop this here, the next thing we'd be doing would be genetically engineering humans and practicing various kinds of uh, eugenics. Uh, others were motivated by this concern that uh, when you innovate, um, it's often the better capitalized, larger, richer farmers that benefit and any new technology, but especially one like this would just continue to put farmers out of business. So they actually had these kind of agrarian commitments. They were very uh, farmer oriented. Um, they found some of these arguments difficult to make, but they discovered pretty quickly that if they raised concerns about food safety uh, and risk, uh, they could get a very significant public hearing. Um, so, uh, and, and, you know, there are points to debate as related to food safety and risk. Uh, but I think that many of the, the people that really pushed that debate down the tracks were, they came into it for different kinds of reasons. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, as for the ordinary consumer, you know, all of the all of the social science research indicates that, you know, food safety is top of the list. Um, you know, they they uh, you know are very reluctant to uh, choose something that they take to have uh, risk associated with it, and they tend to assume that uh, whatever they ate when they were growing up uh, is pretty safe. In my case what I ate growing up were lots of fish sticks and TV dinners. And that's the reason I'm taking diabetes medicine today. So, um, you know, you really shouldn't, shouldn't necessarily privilege uh, uh, the past with respect to your food and diet. But I think people do tend to do that. Sure. And I think there might be something special about food in particular, about the way that it ties into those kinds of reticences. I mean, you know, new innovations in cars, say, people want their car to be safe. They're worried about, you know, dying in a car accident or injuring themselves or others. But there's something different about taking something into yourself and like literally incorporating it um, that I think makes people, you know, maybe a little stronger in their objections when they're worried. It's a theme that uh, operates at many levels. I mean, it does operate at this level of uh, you are what you eat and you might pay for it. Um, you know, when you get older, uh, but it's also operating at, at, you know, a cultural identity level in the sense that, uh, you know, people may not think of this quite, I mean, actually there, there are people who, you know, the, the whole, uh, you know, beef eater idea in England, these guards that outside the palace were called beef eaters because they ate beef and this was supposed to make them courageous like the bull, right? You know, <laughs> uh, there are these kinds of contagious beliefs that, that people hold, but, even if you sort of soften that a little bit, you know, if you're, if you have a particular kind of uh, ethnic identity or family identity, it's important to eat the kind of foods that define that identity. So I think there are many ways in which that gets layered, and uh, uh, you know, understanding that is an important part of food ethics. Right, and and you know, in these sort of four normative uh, way approaches that you're talking about, um, one thing that you do sort of skip over. So I'm wondering how like it would fit into these is the, is people who are trying to be more ethical in their eating, whatever that might mean. So more reflective of their own values. So for some people that's making sure to eat 
or drink fair trade coffee, eat fair trade chocolate, or shade grown because they want to preserve, you know, the ecosystem that they're getting the food out of. Uh, for other people, it's vegetarian or vegan diets because they want to reduce the, I guess, the direct at any rate, um, harm to animals that comes from the food that they're eating. Um, you know, the, those kinds of like, if you talk about normative commitments to the futures of food, I think most people would assume that it's going to involve those kinds of ideas of ethical eating. So where would that fit into this framework? Well, it's a great question. And uh, the the place in the in this project, if I ever got around to finishing it, that it would get answered is in the chapter that comes after the four chapters on each of the archetypes, which <laughs> I provisionally called gaps and overlaps. And I do think that there are quite a few uh, concerns and considerations, and I would put the animal issues at the top of the list that don't really get addressed or at least don't get addressed uh, directly uh, in any of these archetypes. Uh, you know, there are uh, certainly reasons in terms of sustainable intensification why you'd like to be, you'd like to reduce the impacts of uh, methane emissions from livestock production, um, but it's not really the same concern that somebody who uh, either thinks we shouldn't be eating these animals or keeping these animals at all uh, would have for it. So I do think that there are uh, uh, food-related concerns, and some of these cultural concerns are going to fall into that category as well, uh, that uh, really just don't get covered uh, by these archetypes. Um, and I, I, in a certain sense, I, I'm not sure, maybe you can tell me, you can do this you know, in an email after we finish the blog, how I can solve this problem. <laughs> but uh, I think I, I want to acknowledge this and acknowledge that these are going to be parts of the conversation. Uh, but there's a sense in which they don't really have, at least I, I don't understand them as having kind of system level philosophic commitments to what a food system should look like. Um, right. You know, and yeah, I think again, of, kind, kind of like, like how I was saying that the urban agriculture sometimes, you know, some versions of it or for some people draws on the sustainable intensification model, you know, the high tech using innovation to solve all of our problems, kind of progressivism sort of idea. And others, it's, you know, more of a return, right? It's moving backward toward uh, something that has been lost, right, in terms of engagement with the actual act of growing our food. And then I was also saying that consumption you know, the status quo of disruptive technology also tends to pull on one or both of those uh, frameworks. The same can maybe be said about people who are thinking about eating ethically or about the ethical impact of the food that they uh, purchase, because there are, you know, like you were talking about people brewing huge vats of milk, right? So uh, one of the people that I'm interviewing for this podcast, in fact, is writing a book thinking about those kinds of technologies of like clean milk or vat grown meat or any kind or other kinds of attempts to um, use technological innovation to reduce harm to animals, say. And also, you know, uh, although this is usually an afterthought, thinking about stock persons and the kind of work that they have to do. Um, on the other hand, there are people who, you know, if you think about like sort of the rescue farm model as like a, as an image of people who are thinking about uh, engagement with animals as being a good thing, you know, animals being able to live out, pigs being able to live out their piggy lives, having, doing piggy kind of things, and that the problem with high capacity feed operations in part is that pigs don't get to beat pigs very much. Um, that that is, again, trying to pull back to this, uh, you know, looking backward kind of a, kind of a 
framework for ethical reasoning. So it seems like, again, they're drawing on one or the other of those two central American themes of, you know, onward to towards Star Trek or, uh, you know, the heartland of America. Well, it's also true that they're not, they're drawing on the, the status quo mar- modernist kind of model, right? Sure. You know, yeah, good point. There's a certain sense in which, you know, they're thinking of themselves as consumers and they're sending signals to uh, each sector of the, the industry about where, what their preferences are. And uh, so they're choosing to uh, either be vegetarians or to uh, uh, eat impossible burgers uh, because they basically want to kind of influence the way the market works. Uh, this becomes kind of central to, uh, I think, the whole idea of consumption ethics. And again, it's not specific to the food system. You could send right. the same signals about the shoes that you wear or the movies that you go to see. Um, so uh, my, my yeah, I guess it does. I guess it does cut across all four. Like you know, some work that um, Samantha Knoll, whom we both know, has done on the history of livestock in cities, of having pigs and chickens in cities historically in the 1800s, and then now of having, you know, backyard chickens and those kind of conversations is also, you know, whether or not animals are a thing that we want or don't want and what they sort of signal uh, also is very much in conversation in urban uh, agriculture expansion as well. So I guess those conversations kind of cut across all four of them. That's right. That's right. So, uh, yeah, I, I'll, it's a problem I'll have to solve or at least think a little bit more about as I get deeper into this uh, project. All right, well, I look forward to hearing your solution. Uh, <laughs> so one of the things that I uh, ask everyone that I bring on the podcast to do is to bring some kind of uh, food, basically, right? My dream would be that we're all sitting around and talking. You can actually bring something that we can snack on while we're having this conversation just because, you know, speaking of Borgman, having a setting, sitting at table with one another, sharing food really does change the nature of a conversation. Um, it's not super easy to do on a podcast. I don't know that you want to visit every single one of our listeners and have a snack with them, but uh, as, as a default, as a sort of virtual replacement, um, I asked you to think about a food that was meaningful to you and maybe a recipe that was meaningful to you. And uh, the one that you brought is uh, migas. So I'm wondering if you can talk about that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I had never eaten migas um, until I moved to Texas in 1980. And uh, uh, can't remember where I first encountered it. Um, people who are from parts of the world where that's uh, eaten kind of know that it's basically an egg dish. It's uh, People make it in lots of different ways. And I think in my original email to you, I mentioned that sometimes a very similar dish is called chilaquiles. And I've heard probably 37 different explanations of what the difference between <laughs> migas and chilaquiles is. And, uh, you know, it's about, it's, it's a little bit like asking people, you know, what are the essential characteristics of barbecue? Um, right. So uh, at any rate, you know, it's kind of like scrambled eggs, but, you know, as you're cooking your eggs, which have, you know, you're obviously going to cook with onions and garlic and cilantro and tomatillos you know, because everything you cook everything with that, right? Sure. You know, uh, <laughs> right. You're 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 cooking your eggs with that, and then you add, uh, uh, in the way I would do it, you add some um, broken up uh, tortilla chips, and uh, uh, right before it's done, you add some cheese and some fresh tomatoes, and stir it all together, and put the lid on the skillet, let it sit for about a minute, and then hopefully serve it up right away. 
you can eat it off your plate or you can eat it in a tortilla. Uh, fantastic, something that uh, it's never the same twice, but uh, a food that uh, I love to make. I still make it, um, especially whenever family are visiting. And uh, one that became important in my household, partly because both my kids fairly early on became vegetarians. They're not uh, vegans, obviously. They eat eggs and cheese. Uh, but uh, it was something that we would all eat and all enjoy. Um, and uh, like I said, I mean, I've made it recently. So can't imagine going more than a month or two without making a skillet full of migas. Yeah, moving down here to South Texas has been a really interesting <laughs> experience because there's a fantastic, there's just fantastic food down here. But the part of Mexico that we are nearest to that is most sort of influential on our culture is a very meat centric kind of part of Mexican cuisine. Cause Mexican cuisine is very different in different parts of Mexico, but here it's very ranchero kind of style. And not only that, but it's, it's not even like if, if you eat Argentinian food, obviously there's a lot of meat there, but you can see all the meat. It's that big steak right there on that side of the plate. Whereas here it's very much a, well, why don't we throw some, bone into the beans why don't we you know like it's, it's hidden everywhere and so it's made uh so it's difficult i can't go to restaurants too much down here but uh people's cooking abilities are incredible and so i've gotten some great recipes from uh, my students actually i have my philosophy of food students all bring food and talk about recipes um, in class for sort of the same reason of it being a way to get students to talk about their personal experiences and connecting them to the class which is something that I think teachers teach students not to do, uh, but they haven't learned that about food yet. So as soon as you start talking about what's yummy or yucky, then everybody wants to talk about their personal history and connect that to the topic, which has been really, really great. So I've been stealing their recipes and adapting them. Yeah, it's interesting. So my two vegetarian kids, my daughter uh, married a Mexican-American into a Mexican-American family. And uh, the vegetarian bit as lacto-ovo is not too difficult, but the one accommodation she has made is that she doesn't ask what's in the beans. <laughs> and my son married a Chinese woman. And uh, so they both married into a very meat intensive uh, culture. Sure. But also, interestingly, cultures that have some interesting ways to accommodate at least a, a sort of uh, not too rigorous vegetarian kind of diet. Yeah, Chinese food in particular, because of the influence of Buddhism, I think, although feel free, whoever's listening to this, to email me and correct me if I'm wrong about that uh, historically. But I think I'm right that that's why there is a lot of vegetarian and even vegan um, versions of things like, you know, fake meat or meat substitutes um, are everywhere. Like when I was in China in Beijing, I went to this restaurant that had just this telephone book sized menu where you could get fake meat, their words. Uh, you know, so I decided, well, you know, what are you going to do? I'll pick something that I've had many, many times when I wasn't vegetarian as a kind of a, you know, like a, it can set, I can, I know how good they are at copying tastes and then I'll have something I've never had before. So I ordered some ham and the ham was so real. I couldn't eat it. It was, <laughs> it was, I mean, it clearly, it was, the taste was so accurate that like it was triggering all kinds of, I don't know, you know, my, my, ever since I became vegetarian and then vegan, my brain went through some kind of switch where what became food and what became not food just shifted and so it was it was a it was, it was so very they did a good job but it was not a pleasant uh meal experience right so what's your take on the impossible burger you know it's it's right on the border i'm okay with it my wife on the other hand the fact that it like it oozes red liquid when it's on the 
skillet and you know sizzles in that particular way and has that particular very very smoky smell it's just she she'd rather not she'd rather have a, a bean burger that isn't trying to do that right <laughs> well thank you very much for um uh talking with us i may actually steal you back on another time to go over some of the things that we talked about about farming values but uh, at least for this i really appreciate it it's my pleasure thanks for asking me that was my conversation with paul thompson There are links in the show notes, including some links to some of the books Paul has written that I particularly recommend. If you subscribe to Thought About Food, rate the podcast, and especially write us a review, I'd really appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, at FoodThoughtPod. And if you have any thoughts about this episode, or if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed, drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. Bye.